All the way back in 1971, Judah Folkman announced to the world that angiogenesis would be the Achilles heel of cancer. What's happened in the last 35 years? You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and doctor Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients by repurposing current therapies for new uses. Joining us is Walter M. Stadler, MD, Professor of Medicine, Director of the Genital Urinary Program, and Associate Dean of Clinical Research at the University of Chicago Medical Center. Dr. Stadler is an expert in prostate, kidney, bladder, and testicular cancers. And he joins us to talk about the risks and benefits of using anti-angiogenic therapies in cancer. Dr. Stadler, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. So how has cancer traditionally been treated? So the traditional treatments for cancer have been what I have termed DNA or DNA repair targeted therapies. They were all therapies that attacked either the ability of cells to divide or the ability of cells to repair DNA damage. What are the benefits of those and the downsides of those kinds of treatments? Well, the benefits are that they actually work. Certainly successes in testicular cancer, childhood leukemia, and lymphoma are all attributable to these kind of therapies. The downsides are that cancer cells aren't the only rapidly dividing cells, and many of the toxicities with traditional chemotherapy drugs can be ascribed to damage done to other more rapidly dividing cells, including the hematopoietic system and and low blood counts, the mucosal system, including things such as uh, mouth sores and diarrhea, and even things such as nausea. Tell us why you think testicular cancers, childhood leukemias, and lymphomas are particularly sensitive to these drugs where some of the other cancers are not. Well, if I knew that, I think I would be a lot wealthier. Um, Certainly, it's a major question for which we do not have the answer. And is there something special about testicular cancer because of the tissue being different than other tissues in the body? So, certainly, uh, testicular cancer is a unique tissue in the sense that these are germ cells, and that's probably somehow related to its sensitivity to these DNA-damaging therapies. But why these therapies are curative in testicular cancer and have only modest or minimal effects in things such as pancreatic cancer is a question for which uh, we don't have a good answer. So let's turn our attention to anti-angiogenic therapies. Describe for us what that is. So as You suggested in your introduction, it's been recognized for quite some time that in order for cancers to grow, that they need to develop their own blood supply. And this blood supply development or angiogenesis is very similar to what occurs during normal development. And if we could arrest the growth of these particular blood cells and these vascular cells, then we could prevent further growth of the cancer. So how long have we been testing anti-angiogenic therapies and what have been some of the outcomes of these research activities? So anti-angiogenic therapies have been investigated at least in the laboratory since the uh, 1970s. 
but clinical successes were first identified in the late 1990s with the identification of compounds that bind and inactivate some of the growth factors, and specifically a bevacizumab, which is an antibody that binds the VEGF growth factor. What kinds of anti-angiogenic drugs are currently being used, and which cancers, and how effective? So there are essentially three such drugs on the market. One is bevacizumab, known commercially as Avastin, and that's an antibody that binds and inactivates VEGF. The second is serafinib, known as Nexavar, which is a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor of the VEGF and PDGF receptors. And the third is a similar molecule called sunitinib or sutant, which is also a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor of the VEGF and PDGF receptors. And which cancers are we using these in and what kind of impact are they making? So these drugs have had their greatest impact, at least as single agents in renal cancer, which uh, happens to be a cancer that's driven by angiogenesis. The bevacizumab, at least in combination with the more standard chemotherapies, has also been shown to be effective in breast, uh, lung, and colon cancer. How effective are these? Do they create a cure? Do they just lengthen lives? And what kind of side effects do they have? So none of these drugs have cured anybody, but they do lengthen lives and and slow down the progress of the disease. And certainly in the case of the bevacizumab in combination with chemotherapy in breast, lung, and colon cancer, the combination, at least in certain situations, has improved overall survival, even though it hasn't cured anybody. Toxicities of these drugs are perhaps what one might expect if one considers the fact that normal angiogenesis is important in things such as wound healing and response to hypoxia. So there have been problems, for example, in surgical wound healing. With bevacizumab, there have been occasional bowel perforations and dangerous fistulas, including things like uh, tracheoesophageal fistulas and lung cancer. And all of these drugs have had problems with uh, hypertension and cardiovascular toxicity since angiogenesis is important as part of the response to, as I said, hypoxia in patients with vascular disease. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I am speaking with Walter M. Stadler, MD, Professor of Medicine, Director of the Genito Urinary Program, and Associate Dean of Clinical Research at the University of Chicago Medical Center. And we're talking about the risks and benefits of using anti-angiogenic therapies in cancers. So how long do these drugs last? So if somebody taking one of these drugs gets a wound, how quickly can they go off? How long do they have to be off? And how do you put them back on? So the duration of the drug effect is somewhat variable between the different drugs. The small molecules, such as a serafinib and sunitinib, are cleared rather rapidly on the order of 12 to 48 hours. 
the antibody-based drug Avastin can stick around for several weeks, and the general recommendation is that in a non-emergent situation, that major surgery be delayed six weeks following a infusion of bevacizumab. Are antiogenic therapies more likely to help solid tumors or blood cancers? Well, to date, they have been used mostly in patients with solid cancers. There is, however, some very interesting data, at least in the laboratory, regarding their potential use in the leukemias and lymphomas and perhaps even in multiple myeloma. As of now, those have not yet reached clinical fruition, but studies certainly are ongoing. And is there some likelihood that some of the drugs we use to treat the blood cancers as one of their impacts actually have some anti-angiogenic effects like revlimid or thalidomide on multiple myeloma? There have been some thoughts along those lines, and, and certainly revlimid, thalidomide, and some of these what have been called imids in multiple myeloma have been hypothesized to have their effects through the vascular system. More currently, however, the working hypothesis is that they are working through other mechanisms and not necessarily through the vascular system. But as I sometimes tell our trainees, we don't know what we don't know, and sometimes what we tell folks about the mechanism of action of drugs we find out later is completely wrong. Do our current anti-angiogenic drugs cross the blood-brain barrier, and can they help brain tumors? So the small molecules such as serafinib and sunitinib probably do cross the blood-brain barrier. Larger drugs such as the antibody-based bevacizumab don't cross the normal blood-brain barrier. However, in brain cancers, the normal blood-brain barrier doesn't exist. In fact, it's disrupted. And so, therefore, these drugs have been investigated in certain brain cancers, such as gliomas and glioblastomas, and there are some interesting preliminary findings. What are some of the new anti-angiogenic approaches that are being studied? So, there are a number of uh, different anti-angiogenic drugs and anti-angiogenic targets that have been developed and that are either in laboratory or early clinical investigation. There are, for example, integrin inhibitors that have anti-angiogenic effects. There are inhibitors of the TIE system, the TIE system, which is another signaling system in angiogenesis, and certainly a number of different drugs that inhibit these processes are being developed. And whether any of these are going to be effective or not in patients, I think, remains to be determined. Do we typically use anti-angiogenic drugs on the primary tumor, on the metastatic areas of cancer, or does it really not matter? So generally, we think about these treatments for patients with metastatic disease. And to be honest, for the vast majority of cancers, it's not the local therapy that's the major problem. I mean, our surgical technologies are pretty good, and our radiation technologies are pretty good to allow us to definitively treat the local therapy. It's the metastases and the spread of the disease that is the fatal event, and this is where these kind of therapies are being applied. 
30-plus years of research into anti-angiogenic therapies have yielded some interesting results. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Walter M. Stadler, professor of medicine, director of the genitourinary program, and associate dean for clinical research at the University of Chicago Medical Center for talking to us about the risks and benefits of using anti-angiogenic therapies in cancer. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatments for new uses. And you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Stay on top of the latest medical topics by visiting our new website at ReachMD.com, where we welcome your questions and comments. Use the promotion code RADIO when registering online and receive six months of complete access to our on-demand library of podcasts. And thank you for listening.